Hi, everybody, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 24. And the last time that we met, we were talking about the basics of real estate appraisal. Uh, what we talked about is the different uh, methodologies that you utilize or how you approach a problem and get, gather data. We talked about things like site, location, why uh, we went through a specific subdivision and we talked about why certain kinds of property or homes would be worth more depending upon what lot they were located on. So we talked about the fact that a cul-de-sac you know, where we had a fairly small front yard but a large backyard maybe would be very valuable because of a lack of traffic and people would feel safe and the kids would feel safe. And if you took the same house and put them on an intersection where we had a, more or less like a T intersection where cars were constantly look like they were driving up to the front of the house all the time and the possibility of maybe having one of those cars take off and run into the front of the house could be more or less a detriment to the value of that property. So we talked about all that. And then finally, we discussed uh, uh, for people that were interested in becoming a real estate appraiser, I spent some time near the end of the class and took you to the uh, California Department of, or what we call the Office of Real Estate Appraisal, and showed you what the requirements were for you to become a licensed real estate appraiser. And what I sort of emphasized during that period of time is that these requirements and licensing uh, uh, requirements are for people that are going to appraise homes that are going to involve, if you will, the federal government. So we're talking about people that are going to be getting FHA appraisals, VA appraisals, uh, uh, if the loans happen to be sold essentially on the secondary market. So it involves, if you will, most of the residential appraisal area. Another thing that I kind of wanted to emphasize is we sort of draw a line in between appraisers that normally would appraise one family, two family, three family, or four family properties. In other words, duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. We sort of distinguish those by saying those are more or less a residential appraiser. And then a commercial or an investment appraiser is somebody that's really appraising property where people are purchasing it with the idea in mind as an investment. So that would be people, for example, that are buying office buildings, shopping centers, uh, mobile home parks, uh, you know, uh, areas like that, mini warehouse storage, those are all investment properties. And typically, the, inv the appraisers that do those kinds of appraisals specialize in that area. And the reason why is because, you know, in many cases, there's not a lot of similar properties around the area or around the community, so they may actually have to start looking at properties that are located in different towns or different cities to help build their formal uh, professional appraisal for people, you know, for their clients. So they may have to actually do more traveling to, to do appraisals than, let's say, the residential appraiser would be. So anyway, we talked about that. And what we want to discuss today, today and the next time, is the different methods that we use to appraise a piece of real estate. And what we want to talk about is that there are three types of appraisal. We're going to talk about the first one is going to be what we call the comparative market analysis or the market approach. The second approach we're going to be talking about is the cost approach. In other words, what would it cost to rebuild the house or the structure as we see it now minus the depreciation. And the third one is going to be the income approach. And as I've usually said is where we don't really care 
which some other fool has paid for the property, and we don't necessarily care for what it would cost to build it. What we're concerned about is how much money we are going to be earning on that property as an investment. That's where our main concern is. So what I want to do is sort of, again, ground us a little bit in some definitions within the book, go through and share that with you, and then we'll kind of delve into the, the market approach, if you will. So again, what they start telling you here in the beginning is they say real estate salespeople need to know enough about appraisal techniques and practices so that they can determine in advance the approximate selling price of property. And again, this becomes important because remember, when you are getting ready to go out and get a listing on a piece of property, a listing to, to list the house for sale, one of the jobs that you're going to be involved with is helping the client determine what the, a good selling price is for their home. What we don't want to do as real estate agents, we don't want to price it so high that nobody's going to be willing to look at it. We don't want to price it so low that, you know, the next thing you know, the house sells and the client says, you know what, I think you advised me incorrectly. We probably could have gotten more money for it. So we want to know how that works. We also want to know how it works so that if we find that we happen to be in an area that we know for sure that it's getting beyond our area of expertise. In other words, maybe we're going to list a property that we haven't listed before. We're finding it difficult to find comparable, comparable sales. And maybe we need to know where is the time that we maybe need to invite a professional appraiser into the picture to help us establish that sales price for the property. So that's why it's important that we know as real estate agents how this appraisal process works. So moving on from there. It says salespeople have the advantage of determining the probable sales price of property quickly because they see similar properties in the area sell in the area sell for each day. And as I've mentioned before, if you are a licensed real estate agent, one of the things that you're going to be doing on a weekly basis, if not even more often than that, is going on what we call a caravan or a home tour with your fellow real estate agents. You're going to be looking at all the new listings that happen to be for sale in the area or just came on the market that, uh, that uh, have been listed in the previous week or last couple weeks. And, you know, the only way I can describe it is that if I take you and have you look at 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 houses over a period of time, every week looking at maybe 10 or 15 houses a week, you are through, if no other way, osmosis, in other words, just through absorption and looking at a lot of houses, you're going to start to develop a feel of what houses should sell for. You're going to have a feeling for what adds value to a home. You know, in other words, you'll know if, you, if you're selling homes in a certain community whether a, a pool really does add value to that or an extra bedroom does or more bathrooms. You'll just know that because of just seeing lots and lots of properties on a weekly basis. And then talking to your fellow agents, talking to uh, people from other companies, you'll have a really good feel for what property should sell for. Uh, going on from there, it just says uh, they, meaning the brokers or the agents, can be on top of the market because they're multiple listing service and close contact with other knowledgeable agents. They are constantly being updated as to the current listing and selling prices. So... This is something that you just as a real estate agent, just getting up and doing your job every day, you're going to be pretty good at coming up with the value of properties, at least in the area where you happen to be dealing with. Uh, it goes on by, from there. It says, by completing a comparative market analysis form, 
and presenting it to the seller, the seller can see at a glance the selling price of the house or condos in his and her neighborhood. This enables the seller to set a price for listings close to the realistic selling price. So really what we're trying to say is the, we're trying to sell you or convince you or let you know that it is absolutely critical as a, an agent that you really do have a really good, firm understanding of how this appraisal process and business works. It's extremely important because you're the one, you are the one that's going to be advising your client on what the best price is that they could get for their property. If, again, exposed to the market for a reasonable period of time, with, uh, and your job is going to be generating that traffic of people looking at the house so that they can sell that within a reasonable or as quickly as they possibly can for the price that they want. So that's your job. That's why appraisal is so important to you. So moving on from there, what we want to do is just start out by saying, you know, that there are three approaches. The first approach that we have in the real estate business, uh, and we'll talk about that, is what we call the comparative market approach. And what I, what I want to do is I'll read a little bit about this and I'll talk about it. It says one of the three approaches previously mentioned, which is the market approach, the cost approach, and the income approach, those three approaches. Of those three approaches previously mentioned, the market comparison method is the one most frequently used, especially in residential property. It is easy for an alert student to master this technique within a short period of time and in reality, what it is, is it's just plain out now common sense. If you really think about it, as we as consumers, on a daily basis, we go out and we shop for stuff. We are used to that. We go and we look for cars to buy. We go grocery shopping. We buy milk. We buy cookies. We buy candy. We buy all kinds of stuff. So we're familiar with the fact of looking at one product, looking at another product, and saying, well, why is this product more expensive than that one? And then we know as consumers that we can look at that and say, you know why, the reason why this is more expensive is because this other product has more attributes to it. The example I like to use, and I think I've used before, and I hopefully I won't wear this out, it's like as if you went to a car dealership and you were looking to buy a Toyota Camry. That's what I always use as an example. And, you know, they're way out in the distance. There's maybe 50 or 100 feet between you and those cars. So you really can't see any specific details about those cars. And maybe you're standing there and you're looking at them and the salesperson walks up behind you and you say, you know, I, I want to buy a, a blue Toyota Camry and they're both blue. Can you tell me what the price is? And he turns around and says, well, you know, the one on the left is 15000 and the one on the right is 20000 You're very natured thing as being one of our, uh, an American consumer, if you will, is going to say, what's the difference? You know, why is one more expensive than the other? Now, he may come up and say several different things. He may say, for example, you know, they look the same, but the one on the right or the one on the left is, uh, is last year's model. They may say that. Or they may turn around and say, you know, the one on, uh, the, one on the right has more features. It has, an a, it has a stereo. It has leather seats. It has a sunroof. It has, uh, it has special wheels on it. It comes with a special type of warranty. So in other words, the reason why we know why we're going to pay more for one thing over the other is because it has features that the other doesn't have. Same thing when we look at houses. We look at two houses that are sitting side by side. They're in exactly the same neighborhood built by the same contractor, and we sit there and we look at them, and one is priced at 
you know, 350000 the other one is priced at 395000 You say, why is one more expensive than the other? It can be the one that's lower priced is maybe, maybe it's not kept up in good shape. Maybe the inside of it is not well maintained. Maybe the owner has not, you know, you walk into the house and it has cobwebs on the ceiling and it has old carpets and it smells and it, the appliances are worn out. And uh, maybe even in some cases, I've looked at a lot of properties where maybe there's damage done to the inside. There's holes in the wall, broken windows, stuff like that. Or it could be the other house. Maybe the other house has, maybe they're both in good shape, but the other house has a swimming pool. It has uh you know, beautiful countertops, granite countertops. It has all brand new appliances. It has a Rome, nice Roman jacuzzi tub in the bathroom. It has a pool in the backyard. And that's the reason why we're going to pay more for one versus the other. It also could have a view. There could have one where, even so they're next to each other, one doesn't have a view and the other one may have a view. When I say next to each other, there could be, you know, they could be fairly large parcels of property, but it could be because they have a view or they have an extra garage. There could be some reason. So we know that as consumers that we're going to compare the features of both properties. And we're going to actually, believe it or not, we, we in our own, our own little mind are going to assign some kind of a mental uh, value to that. You know, maybe to us, if we buy the house with the swimming pool, we're going to turn around and say, you know what? I really like to have a swimming pool, and I'm really willing to probably pay an extra twenty, thirty, or forty thousand dollars for a swimming pool. You know, I'm willing to pay for that, actually, or I'm willing to pay more money because that has an extra garage. Okay, and the reason why I say that we need to be cognizant of that is because that's how we figure out, you know, for us to figure out how much more to value a feature that another house will have is not really what it costs to build it; it's what we as consumers will pay for it. And what's important about that is for us to keep in mind is that we may have the house that has the pool may have cost fifty or sixty thousand dollars to put that pool in, but consumers may only be willing to pay an extra twenty or thirty thousand dollars for that feature. And that sounds a little bit crazy, but it is a difference between the cost of building something and the value that we as consumers put on it. Okay, so we're going to be ta- we want to talk about that. The next thing is when we're, so this is a real common sense approach. The next thing that we want to think about is how in the world, if we're going to compare one property to the other, how do we make that adjustment? How do we as an appraiser adjust the value for those additional features, plus or minus? So this is very, very important for you to know how you would do it if you're setting, if you're looking at an appraisal or how the appraiser came up with it. So I'm going to go through this. It says how to adjust for a comparable sale, or what we call comps. Because remember, what we are going to be doing when we use this market approach is we're going to take and look at the multiple listing system data, okay, and we are going to look at that and see what other properties have sold for in the neighborhood. Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, in fact, we'll probably start looking at that data before we ever leave our office. We'll probably look at that data. We'll have a list of that property so that when we go out to drive past that property, we can take a look at it. Okay, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Anyway, so it says the market data method is basically common sense. If your neighbor has a similar house to yours that he just sold for 400000 then yours is worth 400000 Okay? Just sold, period, end of discussion. Okay? The, and it goes on from there, it says the, 
Only problem is that the adjustments must be made for any differences between the houses. And this is important. This gives you an example. And we have to spend some time focusing our attention on this so we get what's going on. It says, for example, if, if a similar $4,000 house had a fireplace worth $8,000 and yours did not, then your house would be worth $392,000. Okay. So in other words, if your house didn't have this fireplace that the, the neighbor did, then yours is going to be worth less. Okay? Adjustments should be made to the selling price of the comparable house for differences between the properties. Okay? The usual adjustments are made for differences in location, age, lot size, building size, condition of the property, and any time differences between the sales. So in other words, what do we make adjustments on? How do we make those? So, for example, usual adjustments are made for differences in location. So, for example, I may have a condo, a house, something, and that house might be located in a very quiet neighborhood or a quiet part of the neighborhood. The other house that's a comparable might be located somewhere near a freeway or a noisy street. So that would be a decision I would make. I would make an adjustment for it because people that live in that area tend to not want to live near the noisy street. I mean, I'm kind of thinking back to where I've looked at houses where, believe it or not, the freeway is directly behind that particular house, and you could open up the windows at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and there could be no cars coming past, but you could hear the noise. Um, I've even seen houses. I saw a condominium project one time down in the uh, south part of San Francisco where a train ran right behind the house at night. Okay, and this was brand new. This was not old. This was brand new. So that could be something you're making an adjustment for. Uh, some of the other things that we would make adjustments for would be things like age. One is, is one happens to be newer than the than the other one, meaning that you know it's in better shape, it has a newer roof, the paint job is new, the carpeting is new, so on and so forth. Lot size, typically, usually, if the lot is bigger or it has some kind of a special view, or based on what we talked about the last time, where in a subdivision is located, it could add value to it. We could maybe have a value where we're going to make an adjustment because it's a cul-de-sac versus being on the main street. Uh, building size is another one. We may have houses that look exactly the same, but you're going to find out that yours is bigger or smaller. That could be a difference. Or more bedrooms or less, or more bathrooms or less. Okay. Uh, condition of the property, this is a big thing right here, condition. In other words, so for example, is the carpeting new or is it worn out? Is the house freshly painted or not? Is it got a new roof or not? Those are things that we would take a look at. Any time differences between the sales, that's another factor that's important because one of the problems with the market approach is that we are using comparable properties. So if that property has sold, the closer it is to the date, that our house is, in other words, if it's sold in the last couple of weeks, that would hopefully be a better indicator of value than a house that maybe sold a year ago or a year and a half ago. So we may make an adjustment because of the time of the sale. And remember, there are times, we talked about this before in the real estate cycle, there are times in which the market is on a great big growth cycle. So you're going to find out that if you are using, you know, like maybe you'll read in there that, hey, houses went up in price 20 or 30% in the last year. So what ends up happening is that if you're using those houses that sold five or six months ago, you may find out, and you're telling the client to use that as a comparable, you may find out that, that, house, that your house is actually, because it's in so much demand, 
people are willing to pay more for it because the market is growing. Typically, we associate that with the fact that, you know, the interest rates are lower, there's a lack of supply of houses, and your house is going up in value. You could also have a period of time where, hey, you know what? The market hasn't changed at all. It's sort of flat. So maybe those houses that have sold a year ago or a year and a half ago is still good because the market is really not moving. It goes up and down a little bit, but it's pretty well staying straight. Or we could have, like we're going through right now, where the market is sort of on the downside. So if we take a look at what houses we're selling for last year, we may find out our house actually has to sell for less because the interest rates have gone up. There's less people I can afford to buy, and therefore the prices have to come down if you want to sell it. So you have to look at where in the marketplace, what, what's been going on. Okay, so anyway, so let's go from here. So you have to make some kind of an adjustment. So how do you do this? What you do is you subtract or add from the selling price of the comparable property. Comparable means the property you're using to compare against yours. That's another thing. We call your property that you're appraising the subject property. It's always called the subject property. The property that we're using to compare it to for value is called the comparable property or comps. Okay. So you subtract or add from the selling price of the comparable property to adjust for differences. All right? Um, okay. So anyway, both, most of this I think we pretty much have talked about or I have discussed it here. Uh, let me see if there's some things that they want us to emphasize here. Okay. An appraiser using the market uh, data approach would be most interested in the date that the price was agreed upon. That's another thing we had yesterday. We had a, um, an appraiser by the name of Jeff Webb come in and do a special show for us that we're going to be airing in the future. But one of the things that he made sure that he mentioned is that whenever he does an appraisal on the piece of property, is he also has a copy of the contract, the accepted purchase offer. So he knows you know, what was the agreed upon circumstances that the buyer agreed to buy the property. And the reason why he said that this is important is because it's important for him to know as an appraiser what kinds of concessions have been made. For example, the price, the selling price of the home might possibly be higher because the seller is willing to carry some financing or the seller is willing to carry or pay the points on the loan or the seller is agreeing to pay for the escrow on the title fees. He even went out to the furthest extreme that we see today where people have actually included in the sales price. There was a builder here a few weeks ago that actually was selling a car or included a car with the house. Okay, That's not an unusual thing. You can also find out where builders are providing incentives for people to buy the house. It's not uncommon today. You open up the Sacramento Bee, you look in the Bee, and they'll have under the home section under Saturday and Sunday, starting usually on Friday, they'll talk about the builders offering some incentives. Like, for example, they'll give, they'll give you some credits that you can go to the design center that they have and pick out a carpet that you want and use some of that money to upgrade things like carpet, upgrade countertop, put in special types of dishwashers, ovens, whatever. Okay, so you, the appraiser needs to know that. They need to know why is that price there, what has the seller or the developer or the builder given the buyer as an incentive to buy that house. Very, very important. Because all of a sudden, if you're looking at a comparable and you go, why in the world would they pay that much money, that much more? Well, they're giving all these incentives. Okay, so that's why it's important. So anyway, moving on from there, the last thing they say down here is they say uh, the market data method 
is the most common approach for houses and condominiums. It is also the best method for appraising lots and vacant land on improved property, okay? The most, the best, okay? Best way of doing it. Okay, so there are certain advantages and disadvantages of using these different methods. So one of the things that becomes important is to understand what, you know, what is an advantage and a disadvantage. So under the market approach, some of the advantages are, um, again, it's, it's excellent for appraising single-family homes, condominiums, townhouses, especially condominiums, townhouses, because, you know, they're, they're all in one area, you know, all in one, sometimes one building. There are differences, though, just so that you know this, there are differences in condos and townhouses that will affect value. For example, a lot of times you'll see, for example, if the unit is on the first floor, it may actually sell for more than the first, second floor. The reason why is because sometimes if you have, your unit is on the first floor, you may ha actually also have like a small little courtyard that you can go out there and lay out in the sun and enjoy the weather and so on and grow plants and stuff like that. Also, a lot of times condominiums and townhouses, some people like the idea of it being on the first floor so they don't have to carry groceries upstairs and downstairs. There's also some other issues such as if it's, if it's on the first floor, a lot of times it's a little bit cooler, if you will, in the summer. It's a little bit warmer in the winter. You know, those are just things. Also, they're going to be concerned about things like, for example, how close are you to the swimming pool, to the clubhouse, you know, so on and so forth, okay? But anyway, it is a good method to use. Anyway, so it says the market data approach method is easy to learn. With little experience, it is easy to apply. And that is also, I want to add to that, it's easy for your clients to understand. You know, it's not like it takes rocket science to, to figure this out. It's pretty easy for clients to understand. Number two, uh, since there are usually many recent comparable sales, the required information is readily available. That is true if we're in a market where there's a lot of transactions. If we're in a market where there's not a lot of transactions, then we may not have the data or a sufficient amount of data to really help us with this, okay? Number three, this method is used mostly for houses or condos, which makes this method the most relevant to us as homeowners, salespeople, and investors, okay? So what are some of the disadvantages of the market approach? Uh, number one, the method requires many recent comparable sales or similar properties. Now, one of the things I want to mention to you is when a... Real estate appraiser goes out before they actually leave their office and go out to look at the property. They actually will go into the multiple listing system and they will pull all of the comparable properties that have sold within a recent period of time, like say the last year. The second thing that they're going to look at is they'll look at listings. You know, what, what properties are listed currently for sale and what have those agents put as the sales price? The third thing they're going to look at is anything called expired listings. So in other words, if a property has been on the market for a reasonable period of time, but it hasn't sold, it has expired, they'll look at those too. So you're going to be looking at a lot of different data in order to figure out what that price happens to be. Uh, number two, this method is least reliable when there are rapid economic changes. I mentioned that. So if the prices of houses are going up quickly. Like, for example, if the Fed lowers the rates, the interest rates dramatically, and at the same time we happen to have where uh, a new company moves into town and they need houses for people to live in, you may find out that all of a sudden your house is going up dramatically in value. That means that those comparables 
what the house sold for last year is not going to give you a good indication of value this year. There's going to be quite a few adjustments need to be made. Okay. Conversely, if all of a sudden the Fed raises the interest rates or a company closes its doors, and we've seen that happen here. We've had McClellan Air Force Base, Mather Air Force Base, the Army Depot, HP essentially in many cases has moved out of town. Those things, when they move like that, has a dramatic effect on the value of the property. Okay. And if we put those together with the rise in interest rates, it can have a very, it can make properties drop very quickly, right? So if the market prices are increasing rapidly, um, the comparables, which are based on past sales, lag behind, okay? If it's, it means that if you look at a comparable, that's old information. If prices are decreasing rapidly, comparables, which are based on past sales, still remain high, okay? So you have to look at that. Okay, when you're doing. Last thing, the market data method is less valid with certain income properties because separate analysis of income is required. We'll talk more about that, but the important thing is, is that if you're looking at things like duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, even if you're living in one unit, remember you're looking at the income coming in from those other units to help make the mortgage payment. So income, like, for example, if you buy a duplex where you're going to live in one side and the other side is going to be rented out, remember, if you receive quite a bit of income from that that helps you make the monthly payment, that's going to make the value of the property worth more than if you receive less. Okay, so you're always looking at the income part, and we'll talk about that more. Okay, second method that we have is something called the cost approach. The cost approach is, is uh, and I'll read what this is here, and then we'll go from there. It says the cost approach, if I can get this centered right, the cost approach is the process of calculating the cost of the land and the buildings as, let me get this centered correctly here. The cost approach, let me see, get it right here. The cost approach is the process of calculating the cost of land and buildings as if they were new today and then subtracting the accrued depreciation to arrive at the current value, okay? And um, what we want to do here of the property, and I'm just going to go through this and finish the definition. Uh, the use of the cost approach, okay, the use of the cost approach, the appraiser must be able to determine the new construction cost, okay, of replacing the building today using the construction cost methods. Depreciation is estimated by the appraiser and then subtracted from the estimated cost of the building. The value of the lot and depreciated building is then added back in to find the value. Let me explain how this basically works. What you do is you're using the cost approach when you find that the market approach is not necessarily going to work very well. And... Um, What you basically have to do is you have to say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take and, first of all, I'm going to figure out what the cost of the land is. Now, in order to do that, in a lot of cases, you're going to have to have some kind of market value, market approach. So what have have people been paying for the lots that are in the neighborhood? Where is the cost approach used a lot, especially when we're dealing with new construction? Okay. Uh, yesterday, Jeff was mentioning to us that, you know, one of the things that he may very well be asked by a lender, you know, for somebody that's building a house. So, for example, if somebody's getting ready to build a house, what will happen is the lender who's going to lend the money to construct the house will contact a real estate appraiser. 
and say to the real estate appraiser, I want you to go out there and figure out for us, the lender, what the value of that entire property is going to be worth after they finish construction. And the reason why the lender wants to know that is in the event, if for some reason the owner of the property goes into default, they want to know what they can get for the property of its sold. So what will happen is that the real estate appraiser will take the lot and figure out what the lot is worth. How do they do that? Usually by looking at other properties that are in the area and what they've sold for and then making any adjustments. So maybe they're looking at lots that have sold. They're making adjustments in the land itself for the size of the lot, for its view, so on and so forth, for you know how much is usable land, unusable land. Is it on a hill? Is it in a valley? They'll make all those adjustments. Then they'll take the plans for the house, and they will figure out, usually using a service, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a service called Marshall Swift that will provide data to build a new house. They'll use that to figure out what the cost will be for the new house. Okay. Then what they'll do is they'll take the land, and they'll add the house together, and then that will be the appraised value of the property. Okay. That's if you have brand-new construction. So the second thing is, is what happens if you have to use this approach, but it's not on a brand new house? How do you handle that? Well, you use the same thing. You figure out what it costs for the land. You figure out what it would cost to replace the house, replacement costs. And then what you do is if the house is 10 or 15 or 20 years old, then you subtract what we call the depreciation. And what depreciation is, is the wear and tear on the house. Okay, in other words... You know, when you built the house, it had a brand-new roof, okay? The roof now is 15 years old. The typical roof lasts 20 years, so, you know, three-quarters of the roof is gone, okay? So you're going, to dep- you're going to take that cost away and arrive at a value, an appraised value, using the cost approach. So anyway, um, they go through here, and they say one of the three approaches tends uh, – let me see here. The cost approach – I think this is the part that I wanted to do. The cost approach is most useful when appraising new buildings, special purpose or unique stru- or pre- special purpose or unique structures. Estimating depreciation is critical in this approach. As the building gets older, depreciation becomes more difficult to estimate. Okay, so in other words, you know, you know, is, you know, it's it's very difficult to go out there and take a look at a roof and say, well, you know, you're about half halfway gone. You know, we can use information that's provided by an industry, you know, and say, you know, that kind of a roof, for example, is going to last 20 years or 30 years, or that kind of a paint is going to need to be repainted again, or the carpet's worn out. But those are the things that the appraiser is coming up with, trying to come up with that depreciated value. Anyway, estimating depreciation is critical to the approach. As the building gets older, the depreciation becomes more difficult to estimate, eventually making the cost approach impractical. Since newer structures have little depreciation, the cost, the cost approach is most suitable for newer structures. The cost approach may also be preferred for special purpose or unique structures as they are, have few, if any, market comparable sales. So unique, funny looking structures, you know, or, uh, you know, things that, uh, for example, um, I'm trying to think right now, uh, you know, some sort of a unique building like a log cabin or a, or a dome house. But on the other hand, you also look at what other people are paying for that, if you can find some comparables to that. Special purpose structures such as airplane factory, city hall, or church are best appraised by the cost approach. Okay? Again, 
All that's doing, though, is, is indicating to you what it would cost to build a structure minus the depreciation, how much is worn away. Whether or not that city hall building can be used for another use is a, a different issue. Uh, I mean, I've seen that before. Uh, there's a church in Folsom. It was a Catholic church that for years and years, I mean, it was used as a church. When they sold it, about the only use that you could use that building for was another church. So what they had to do was to find some other religious organization that would be ready, willing, and able to buy that. It wasn't like you could use it where it was located for a bookstore or retail or anything. It was made, it was put in the community near all the houses and used specifically for a church. So, you know, you have to look at the fact that, you know, the value of that is based on somebody of a similar use that can use it or if they can, you know, use it for something else. Okay, so um, let's see if we can go in here. Okay. They just give you some steps that you would go through in doing this, the four steps, if you will. The first step that you're going to go through is appraise the land or the lot separately. Look at the lot as totally separate. You know, where is it located? Again, its view, its size, its shape, its amenities, all those things. Very, very important. The second thing you're going to do is estimate the replacement cost. Replacement means, you know, it may have been built a bunch of years ago for $100,000, but to replace it today may cost you $150,000 or $200,000. So what does it cost to replace it? Okay, that's the second step. Okay, and underneath the replacement, let me see here. Okay, you know, they talk about the replacement cost here. And um, they talk about three different methods of replacement costs. And so we want to make sure that you get this. It says replacement cost of a building at similar new structure today of equal utility using a modern construction methods. That's very important. So we're talking about, you know, if you look at some of these uh, buildings that have been built, maybe at that time when they built them, they, for example, maybe all the wood in it was hand-sawed. We're not doing that anymore. We're using some other kind of method. We may decide that maybe the roof was all built with the rafters and, you know, all were cut on site by hand. Maybe the, we're going to use a current method where we go to a lumber yard and we say, here, build the trusses and deliver them to the site. So we're talking about current methods. Uh, I think I mentioned that before. Nowadays, where they're using, there's much more of a push to do as much work, if you can, on the house off-site. So if you can go to a, con uh, to a controlled environment, like a large lumber yard, and ask them, build my walls for me, <laughs> you know, uh, strap them all down on a flatbed trailer and deliver them to the house so I don't have to worry about building them on site. I just have to worry about tilting them up or, you know, putting them up. It's a lot more economical, less waste, a lot more efficient. So that's what we're talking about, about current methods. Okay, then they talk about three replacement methods, okay? And I just mentioned what these are. And what they are is they almost go from uh, like a gross square foot method to a very detailed method to do that. That's what these three approaches are for that cost approach. The first one. Comparative unit method is used to derive a cost estimate in terms of dollars per square foot per cubic foot based on a known cost of similar structures and adjusted for time and price differences. So, for example, I may look at a house. This is like when I'm using the Marshall-Swift method where I look at the fact that I say, you know, this house 
It's got a wood siding or it's stucco. It's got these kinds of windows. It's got this kind of roof on the house. In other words, I go through a book, this Marshall Swift book, where I look at pictures and different, give me examples. I look at that and I say, you know what? That house is very similar in nature to the construction of my home. It tells me what the cost is per square foot. And what it does is it tells me that almost like in, a, in an area by itself, like, like as if it says, okay, it's going to cost maybe $2, not $2, but it'll cost maybe $50 or $100 per square foot to build this house. Now, it may be that the, that the kitchen costs a lot more because it has all the appliances and the bedroom costs a lot less because it just has a closet, but they're going to give me an average. I'm going to take whatever that cost is. I'm going to take the cost of the house that I'm doing it. I'm going to just do the math, and it's going to say, okay, the cost of building is this much. Then normally what I'll need to do after I get that cost is make adjustments to that based on the area where the house is located. So it kind of stands to reason as common sense that it probably would cost me more to build a house in San Francisco where the labor costs are higher and possibly the material costs are higher than it would be in Sacramento. So I'd have to make some kind of an adjustment for where the construction is taking place. But I'm doing it based on a square footage. Very easy thing to understand. We read this in the paper all the time, in newspaper articles. They say the average cost of building a home in Sacramento today is $150 a square foot or $200 a square foot. That's how they come up with that, okay? Number two is where we use what we call the unit in place method, okay? Uh, what this does is it employs unit costs for the various building components, such as the foundations, the floors, the walls, the windows, and the roofs, as installed and uses square footage, linear foot, or appropriate units of measurement to estimate each component part. Okay? So what we're doing is we're making it more detailed in how we do it. So we say, okay, to build the foundation costs this much. To put the roof on costs this much. To put the walls up costs this much. We're not getting down to the actual nails and screws and glue, but we are getting component, component-oriented prices. Okay? The next method is something called the quality survey method. It involves detailed estimates of the quantities of raw materials used, such as brick, mortar, lumber, cement, price of such materials, and the labor costs involved. So, and again, so we're going from the idea here is we're getting from very, very uh, price per square foot to maybe price per unit to really detailed. This would probably be closer right here to estimating where, say, a contractor would be building a house. And you go to the contractor with the plans, and they come back and they say, you know what, I went and priced this out. We're going to use so much lumber. The cost per lumber is this many, so much per linear foot. We're going to use so many, uh, this kind of roofing material. We're going to order this many square, you know, this much roofing material for the house. We're going to use this much paint. In other words, they've estimated the whole thing out, and they've also figured out what the labor is going to be. So that's really detailed-oriented, okay? So anyway, that's how you're going to figure the cost. Okay, the next thing you're going to have to do from there is you're going to have to estimate and deduct depreciation. In other words, now that you know what it costs to build it, you're going to have to figure out what the depreciation is. And there's different types of depreciation, Okay. So it says here we want to get a definition. Of this. Depreciation is a reduction in the value of the property due to any cause. Okay, and any cause, what they mean is, is that it could be for a lot of things. It could be that things just wear away, 
wear out. It could be because they become functionally obsolete. In other words, uh, you know, a one-car garage on a house makes the house sort of obsolete now, okay, or a worn-out kitchen, that kind of stuff, all right? The difference between replacement cost of the property and its market value is depreciation. So we'll go through here and we'll talk about this. What they're going to do is the loss of value in any cost is caused by depreciation. Estimate, estimate and deduct the depreciation from the replacement cost of the building being appraised. So the idea is we know what it would cost to build it brand new. Now what we're going to have to do is try to figure out as an appraiser how much to reduce that because of depreciation and kinds of depreciation. So this is the accumulated depreciation, sometimes called accrued depreciation. Accrued depreciation observed is the loss in value of improvements from any cause at the date of the appraisal. Accrued depreciation is what has happened in the past. Okay, And so there are five methods for estimating accrued depreciation. You have a capitalized income, a market, a straight line, an engineering, and a breakdown. These are just different methods Okay, of doing it. The biggest thing that usually you look at that most people use is what we call straight line. And why do we use straight line? Straight line is used because, for example, the Internal Revenue Service allows us to take off the cost of depreciation every year by using a straight line method. As an example, what do I mean by straight line? Let's say if I took a house or a property that I was going to invest in, and let's say the value at the time that I bought the property was $400,000. That's what I paid for the house or say the, whatever it is, the investment property. Now, when I talk to the appraiser or I talk to the real estate agent, we together figured out that of that $400,000 value for the house, $100,000 of that is for land and $300,000 is what it would cost to build the building brand new. That's what it cost. Okay, so we did. How did we do that? We got per square footage. We did something. We came up with a cost. So now we know. Okay, we can't depreciate land. Land can't be depreciated. You know, when we get all done, even after the house is built and people live in it for a hundred years and they knock it down, the land is still there. So we're talking about the building. So we take this building. And we say, okay, the build the building brand new is three hundred thousand dollars. So how do we figure out how much we need to take off every year because it's so old? What we do, and this is a very simplistic approach, the IRS allows us to do is to take, for example, 30 years and divide that into $300,000. If we do the math, that means that every year that we own that house, the value of it, if we divide, if we divide 30 into $300,000, is $10,000. Okay. That means what the IRS tells us is that every year that we own the house, if we don't do anything else to it, it's going to depreciate in value $10,000 per year. Every year, $10,000. So if we're looking at a way of kind of coming up with an appreciation method, we could use that method. And that would mean if we built the house, if we figured out the house was brand new, it cost us, for example, uh, $300,000 to build it. We've owned it for a total of, let's say, uh, let's say uh, 10 years. Okay, so it's been in existence for 10 years. What we do is we take the 10 years times the $10,000, and that comes out to be $100,000, and that means that we depreciate the house by that much. Okay, that's what we're talking about depreciation. Okay, so that means if it was worth $300,000 to build it brand new plus a lot, 
and it had been in existence for 10 years and we hadn't done anything to it, that means we would take that price down by $100,000. That's what we mean by depreciation. Now, of course, realistically, in the real world, does that happen that way? No, because why? Because we as homeowners or investors do things to keep the house up. Okay, we may have replaced the roof during that period of time. We may have painted. We may have replaced the carpet. In other words, we do everything we can in order to keep the value of that structure up. But it's just an, it's just like a, an example of how this would work. Okay, very very important that we do that. Okay, so they they go through these different methods, and basically what they do is they say the straight line method is explained here. For information on the other methods, you can go someplace else. And it says the straight line method age life assumes that the value declines in equal amounts of depreciation of depreciation each year until it reaches zero. Okay? That's basically what we're talking about depreciation wise. All right. Now, this company that does this kind of an approach here, the company that provides this kind of data is called Marshall Swift. Okay, this is who appraisers use. And what they do is that this company provides this kind of data in a lot of different formats. They provide it, when I first started working with it and using it, it was like you got a loose leaf binder. And in the loose leaf binder, you would go through and you would find pictures of houses that would help you narrow down the kind of construction you were dealing with. So they may show you a house that had a tiled roof and uh, stucco sides, or it was brick, or it was wood siding. So you would pick that kind of construction, would help you narrow in on what the house actually looked like. Now, this service here, this is a company, Marshall Swift is a company that provides this service to real estate appraisers. And uh, they provide all different sorts of products. They provide this information via, uh, uh, if you will, a book, okay? That's a service that you pay for every year to get it updated. And they also provide it via CD-ROM. They provide it in a lot of different ways. What I want to do now is I think I might be able to take you to their website uh, and show you what their stuff looks like. It's in your Blackboard website for those of you that are interested in looking at this. So I'm going to go to Blackboard. And if I go down here and go to Blackboard and I'll log on, okay, and hit the old Go button. And I'm going to log on. Okay. And I'll go down, I think I'll go up here just for the courses, and I will go down to your particular course, which happens, again, you're, you don't see all these courses in here. Um, let me see if I can find the right one. Here it is. Okay. And if I go to the class website links, and I go to this particular topical area, which is appraisal methods, and I think it's in here, this is Marshall Swift. Okay, this is the name of the company. So, in other words, what I'm showing you here, you know, I know that for whatever reason, maybe it might be a little bit blurry for you to see on TV, or if you're watching this on the Internet, it may be a little blurry. But anyway, I have the link in the website so you can see it. This looks a little bit different than the picture that's shown in your book. That's because they've updated the websites. Okay? They have two different, if you will, solutions. Okay? They have a residential 
um, uh, solutions, and they have commercial. So in other words, they provide data for both residential properties and commercial properties. Okay, And keep in mind that what you have to be able to do as an appraiser is you're given an assignment to go out and appraise a piece of property. And that property today might be located in South Sacramento, and tomorrow might be in Placerville, and the next day might be uh, uh, in El Dorado Hills. So you have to have something that has data from all over the place. So that's what they provide here. Uh, if you go down here, oh, sorry, let me go up here and make sure I get the right thing. Okay, so they have residential and they have commercial. Uh, they have, just to give you an idea here, if you click um, here for your residential type of products that they have. So in this location right here, they have the cost approach residential online course. So they have a course that you can take on how to use their products, okay, online, so you don't have to go there, which is nice for those appraisers that, you know, are looking at saving money, if you will. You have another thing here called the residential cost handbook approach training, okay? You have a residential cost handbook. And right here is the thing that you would be looking at to start out with. It says the most current, let me see if I can make this any larger here. I may or may not be. It doesn't look like I can. Okay. This cost book, it says the most current building costs for basic single-family homes, uh, low-rise apartment buildings, manufactured homes, old residences, townhomes, duplexes, and urban row houses. Okay, that's what's in this book. Okay, you have a CD. You have, um, and, and again, these are just the different products. You have a residential cost a estimator product that you can get, which is software. Um, on and on and on. So you have all different, you have a, a log home residential training course. So if you're going to be appraising log homes, you have that. So let me go back up here. Um, if you want to know more about, uh, let's just get that one product, which is your cost handbook is located right here. As you can see, this looks just like what's in your book. So this happens to be, uh, this is the actual book right here, and I'm just going to read it because I know that you can't see it very well, even if I make it larger, but it says, with six classifications for building quality ranging from low to excellent, this extensive handbook helps you eliminate the guesswork of construction quality and corresponding descriptions and with corresponding descriptions and photographs. In addition, local multipliers for frame and masonry residences in more than 825 locations, because there's going to be a difference based on where it's built, okay, throughout the United States, U.S. territories, and most major cities in Canada ensure that your costs are localized and relative to the current market conditions, market for material conditions, okay? Uh, then after that, it says locate thousands of square foot and component costs for every type of residence, including basic single-family, site-built homes, low-rise apartment buildings, manufactured, uh, older townhouses, so on and so forth. So that's the basic book, if you will, which matches what's in your, if which matches what's in your. In fact, that picture that's here is the same exact one that is on your uh, in your textbook right here. So that's the same exact one. So anyway, um, I want you to know that it's available. It's a service. It's there. You can look at it. For those of you that are looking at taking, you know, real estate appraisal, this is something that you would be looking at. Going back for one thing right here, I just want to show you that they also have similar information for 
commercial. So you have commercial products. You have, uh, again, you have the same thing. You have the publication. Uh, I'll go in here and, um, again, it's, it's, it's more extensive, but you have uh, different types of appraisal guides for commercial property. Okay, same thing. What's important, I think, as an appraiser is that an appraiser needs to have this kind of information available to them in order for them to do their work. Because essentially what happens is, is that when you get ready to do an appraisal, you know, you're provided, you know, a request to do the appraisal. You're provided, you know, a copy of the contract, your, you know, and the address of the property. And then what an appraiser has to start doing is start collecting information. I mean, you're going to have to, you know, go to the multiple listing system in order to get data on, you know, comparative market analysis, what properties have been selling for, look at what's currently being listed for sale, what's sold, what expired. Uh, you know, you have to have that data available to you. Uh, you may also find yourself going to title insurance companies and finding out what properties that have sold that haven't gone through MLS. You know, like new homes, properties that people have sold on their own, stuff like that. You may also find that you're calling these agents and brokers and finding out what, you know, what the houses were like. Why did they sell for that price? And then, of course, you're going to need to have a service for cost. You're going to have to find out what does it cost to really build this house? You know, what, you know, what kinds of data is available so I am able to come up with a reasonable cost estimate. Now, the next time we meet, we're going to move on. We'll move on from the cost. We'll talk a little bit more about the cost. But the next one we're going to be doing is talking about the income approach. Okay? And uh, I think the next time we meet, what we're going to be doing is talking about the advantages and disadvantages of the cost approach. And then we'll finally move on to the income approach, you know, how we do the income approach, which in some cases can be, for some people, sort of mysterious because, you know, the market approach we can compare, you know, one property versus the other. The cost approach we can say, hmm, I can see where the lot costs that much. I can look at a set of plans and understand why it costs that much to build that house. But the income approach, now we're starting to look at some other things. We're trying to figure out how much, what is the value of that income that's coming in every month being paid to us? You know, what is the value of that? Okay, what is its capitalization rate? So we're going to be talking more about that. So anyway, um, I think we discussed a lot of stuff this time. And uh, what I want you to do is uh, I think appraisal is a really good uh, area, and you really do need to know quite a bit about it. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time. Have a nice day.